From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. A little less than two years ago, a group of familiar faces met, yet again, to try to save the planet. There had been meetings before, Copenhagen, Kyoto, Rio, but never before had they felt this kind of momentum. Never before had they dared to hope that they would actually reach a binding agreement. An agreement by nearly 200 countries to try to reduce global warming. Je vois que la réaction est positive. Je n'entends pas d'objection. L'accord de Paris pour le climat est accepté. Here's why it worked. Before the Paris conference, the world's two top polluters, the United States and China, had struck their own deal on climate. And that led to the other countries signing on. The Paris Agreement is structured around a goal to limit the increase in global average temperatures to two degrees Celsius with an effort to try to limit it uh, even further to one and a half degrees. That's the top line goal around what Paris embodies and the vision behind it. That's Brian Deese, currently at Harvard's Kennedy School. He worked on the Paris Accord as President Obama's senior advisor on climate change. Deese was one of the administration's top negotiators at the conference. The whole theory behind Paris was that by getting every country to step up to the plate and every country to make a commitment and then agreeing to a binding system where countries have to submit targets, monitor those targets, and have those targets subject to independent review, that over time, that process would help increase the ambition of countries' climate pledges. So rather than set one overall standard, the agreement lets the signatories set their own targets. It's up to each country to balance the trade-offs of potential job loss or higher taxes while investing in renewables. Deese admits this limits the overall effectiveness of the agreement. The country commitments that each country made as part of Paris are wholly inadequate to limit global temperature increases to two degrees. So Paris alone is not sufficient to solve the issue of climate change, nor are the country pledges themselves sufficient to meet Paris's targets. Still, says Dees, the deal represents an important milestone. I like to think of Paris as it's a it's a variant of uh, Churchill's phrase about democracy. Paris is the worst global climate agreement that we've had, except for all of the others that have come before it. Today on America Abroad, we see how Paris led to new investments, laws, and efforts to combat climate change. We'll go to China, where hundreds of thousands of people are now climate refugees. We'll visit the Arctic, where people there are afraid their way of life is literally melting. And we'll find out why the U.S. military is calling on President Trump to stay in the Paris Agreement. First, let's find out more about the Paris Agreement with Brian Deese, who served as lead negotiator for the United States. Well, to take the background, you have to start all the way back in 2009, when there was a global climate conference in Copenhagen that ended in failure. That conference failed because the countries of the world were still operating on an old model, where you had developing countries in one bucket and developed countries in another bucket. Uh, China being the principal uh, country on the developing country side and the United States on the developed country side. And those two groups were still butting heads together. And that conference really illustrated that if there was going to be a new way forward, we were going to have to change the game in a fundamental way. 
So you fast forward over the course of several years, there was a quiet and persistent effort within the U.S. government, led by President Obama, to engage diplomatically in writing new rules of the game for international climate diplomacy. And what you saw unfold was an approach that said, rather than having two teams that went head-to-head developed in developing countries, instead, we are all going to engage in a race where we run uh, and chase each other to figure out who's going to be the clean energy superpower of the future. And the Paris Agreement really embodies that structure. Well, how was President Obama able to convince China? Because as you're describing it, that is the key, getting China to sign on. Well, I think that the most important thing to recognize about China and India and other countries' uh, behavior is that these countries were acting out of their clear self-interest. And so one of the things that you saw happening in China over the last several years was an increased awareness among the Chinese population that air pollution was presenting a real threat to their livelihoods, their lives, and their children's health. So if you go to Beijing today, the most used app is not a messenger app, it is the AQI, the Air Quality Index. People in Beijing wake up and they look at the AQI and they ask questions about whether their children can go outside that day. And the leadership within China was recognizing that it was in their economic and political interest to move forward on this. And as part of it, like these countries are seeing what the other countries are doing and they think, oh, well, then I need to step up my efforts because let's say India is doing all this stuff and I'm not really keeping up. Is it kind of in a weird way based on that a competition? Yes, that for years, the dominant economic thinking was that if any individual country stepped up and did more, then that would cause other countries to pull back and do less. The Paris Agreement is predicated on the opposite theory, which is that as the cost of clean energy solutions continues to plummet, and as the opportunity to benefit economically from lower carbon solutions grows, that countries will engage in a form of competitive race to try to garner the benefits of a clean energy economy. That is a new approach. Paris represents something different from what has been tried in the past. Would there be tariffs or anything, any kind of punishment if a country said, you know, we're going to pull out now? I think the diplomatic ramifications of a step like that would be uh, extraordinarily significant. So I think that What you're seeing right now in terms of the huge volume of voices left, right, and center, and from the business community as well as other sectors, is a reinforcement of the costs that the United States could face if the administration were to decide uh, to pull out of the agreement altogether. So the White House now, with Donald Trump as president, There have been a series of efforts to undo some of President Obama's climate policies and, you know, seeking, for instance, to ease pollution rules on power plants and vehicle emissions, especially involving the coal industry. Would that, in effect, pull us out of Paris because we wouldn't be meeting our own climate goals if these actions go into effect? It is safe to say that if you as a country remain a party to the Paris Agreement, then you are under an obligation to put forward targets and then submit in a transparent way what your domestic strategy is to hit those targets. But 
If you look at what's happening in the U.S. economy right now, it's important to step back from all of the hype and all of the rhetoric that is coming out of Washington right now and look at what's actually happening on the ground with respect to emissions. The power sector is moving toward lower carbon, cleaner energy solutions right now, and that process is continuing unabated even since the election. In the transportation sector, you've seen major auto companies come out and say that they are going to continue to hit the fuel economy pledges that have been put forward. And a big part of the reason for that is that the market is increasingly driving investment in cleaner energy solutions because they are cheaper, better, and consumers are wanting those solutions. So it's important to keep your eye on that reality because at the end of the day, that is what's going to dictate whether the United States has actually complied with uh, its pledges under Paris. That's not to say that federal policy and that U.S. leadership are irrelevant. In fact, they are crucial. So if the United States cedes its leadership role in clean energy and in reducing global emissions and China takes on that role as the world's leader, what would that mean? There's no question that in the wake of this election, China has identified this as a strategic opportunity to demonstrate their global leadership and their global ascendance. You've seen uh, speeches from Chinese leaders signaling that uh, China is prepared to take on the mantle of global leadership on this issue. You've seen their commitment to spend $340 billion deploying renewables in their country by 2020. This is a race. We are, we are the race is on for which countries are going to be the clean energy superpowers of the 21st century. And for the United States, the potential dividends of that race are significant. It's in our national interest and our economic interest to do what the United States has done uh, in its history again and again, which is outcompete and out-innovate the rest of the world and then make sure that those benefits are flowing to uh, our workers and our economy. Brian Deese, a former senior advisor to President Obama, played an instrumental role in negotiating the Paris deal. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. China, the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, is transforming itself into a clean energy superpower. But that transformation has been difficult. Jocelyn Ford reports from the western province of Ningxia, where hundreds of thousands of climate change refugees have settled. A drive through the terrace mountains of Ningxia province, bordering the Gobi Desert, shows what some places on Earth might look like a half century from now. The earth is hard and dusty. The dry grass crackles underfoot. Over the past 50 years, the temperature in this region has risen 2.2 degrees centigrade, nearly 4 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a bigger temperature rise than the 2 degrees centigrade or 3.6 degree Fahrenheit increase scientists warn is a tipping point and should be the cap by the end of the century. Facing more frequent droughts and starved for water, the province took a drastic step. It's relocated over a million farmers. More people than live in Austin, Texas. My taxi driver, a former farmer, points to a hilltop and says the landscape is different from when he was a kid. That used to be a bare mountain with no trees. After reclaiming the fields from farmers, 
they planted trees. Until a couple of years ago, there were 30 families living in this steep valley. Now, only a handful are left. 58-year-old farmer Mi Jung-jung is one of the few who stayed behind. He says the tree planting has made a difference. He says after planting lots of trees, it started to rain more, and that has helped reduce the heat. For China, climate change is no hoax. It's impacting lives today. And the fear is it will become much more socially disruptive in years to come. That's one of the reasons why the Chinese government did an about-face on climate change. Hu Min is the executive director of the Innovative Green Development Program, a non-governmental organization. When I started, you know, like 14 years ago, it was the time when climate change, the word, is kind of not politically correct. So we're not supposed to talk about that much. It was mainly finger-pointing between developing country and developed country and who is supposed to take more actions. Then things changed. China became the world's number one emitter of greenhouse gases. The growing middle class started clamoring for a cleanup of the choking air pollution. And the national leadership wanted to shift from dirty, low-paying industrial jobs to cleaner ones. So the government started trying to turn the bad news about pollution into good news for the economy. The new mantra was ecological civilization. In China, we have seen that the uh, renewable energy sector, for example, the wind, power, and uh, electric vehicle industries, they have been creating a lot of jobs. And also those jobs are uh, high-value jobs than uh, the coal miners. This is very clear. Nowhere is this more visible than at the annual photovoltaic exhibition underway in China's business capital, the coastal city of Shanghai. Exhibition doesn't do the event justice. The crowd is humongous. An estimated 220,000 visitors attended. That's as if one out of every three people in Washington, D.C. dropped by. Professor Shen Wenzheng has watched the exhibition grow from a tiny offshoot of an academic conference he organized in 2005. Now, anyone who is anyone in solar is here. I think this is the biggest exhibition on photovoltaic in the world right now. Most of the PV company in the world take part in the exhibition in Shanghai. The exhibition hosts almost as many companies as the Shanghai Auto Show, and it shares some of the glitz. Women in short skirts show off a prototype solar car. Nearby, there's a live jazz band. It's sponsored by the German company Horaeus, one of the major makers of the silver paste that forms the lines on solar cells. Executive Vice President Tore Prong says Horaeus plans to hire 100 more employees, and its youthful vibe is part of the recruiting strategy. Solar only really lifted up in, you know, five years ago. So most of the people here in China in this industry are very young. Among the 1,800 exhibitors, there are only about two dozen American companies. Mark Ma is global marketing manager for DuPont's photovoltaic business. Not too long ago, solar was seen as pie in the sky because it was too expensive. That, too, has changed. Actually, in a lot of uh, area, it's already competitive. Like in California, price is uh, competitive to the traditional uh, energy resources. 
Professor Shen's lab at Shanghai Jiao Tung University works on solar cells that can generate electricity on both surfaces. He says the advances are in part due to strong government support for research. Past ten years, the Chinese government put a lot of the fundings on research, much faster, much larger than the U.S. fundings. That's attracted a lot of Chinese researchers working in the U.S. to come back home. Of course, these jobs aren't helping out those who are being displaced in the coal industry. China's government is in the midst of a three-year program to shutter 4,300 mines. Back in Ningxia Province, not too far from where farmers are being relocated, we drove through a small coal town. Sleepy town. Few cars slowly meandering down the the main street. Big coal trucks by the side. At the local photography studio, Yan Yujen says if the coal mine in town were shut down, she and her family of four would be out of a livelihood. Of course, everyone wants clean air, but you also have to make a living. Where we can move to? She asked, "Where are you from?" America. <laughs> America. <laughs> Last year, miners took to the streets over unpaid wages, and the government was forced to come up with a special $15 billion assistance fund. In recent years, coal production has plateaued, and China's in the midst of a plan to cut 1.3 million coal mining jobs. But no, the out-of-work miners aren't expected to arrive on U.S. shores. Coal analyst Jenny Huang of Fitch Ratings says the government has various schemes for redeploying redundant workers. Because industry-wide failure could create some social problem in these areas. In one area in northern China, 40,000 coal workers are now working in agriculture. Elsewhere, they're moving up the value chain. Some of the coal miners become more like the Chinese version of Uber driver. China is transitioning to an economic model that involves more consumerism. More cars, more services, more vacationing. This suggests new sources of greenhouse gases. Three years ago, China's carbon emissions per person overtook Europe's. Senior advisor for the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Ni Huan, is concerned the Chinese public is too blasé about climate change. Some of the rising middle class in China, they don't care about the environment. They don't care about the climate change. Disillusioned by adults. Ni Huan started a grassroots organization called Green Light Year to raise awareness among kids about how to live a low-carbon lifestyle. Ni Huan has turned her small apartment into a low-carbon demo home. In her tiny sliver of a garden, she generates electricity with a solar panel and has an aquaponics garden with lettuce, mint, and chives, all floating in a fish tank. And nourished by fish poop. Today, 40 children from a nearby school are taking her tour. Nine-year-old Gerard Yongqi Chang is impressed with what he sees in Ni's tiny garden. I think the fish tank and the plant is very interesting. They help each other to grow fast. The kids are surprised when Ni tells them the state electric company pays her when she generates extra power. And she gets a significant financial incentive for her electric car. China is already the largest manufacturer of electric vehicles, and the government is now proposing requiring auto manufacturers to have 12% of total auto sales be electric or hybrid vehicles within three years. Ni Huan says government incentives for officials who want promotions used to be based on economic growth. 
Now, the environmental record also counts. So that's why a lot of government officials, they came to visit my home to see what exactly can be done at the grassroots community and uh, how to reduce the carbon footprint. The jury is still out on how much of a global leadership role China will take on. But regardless of whether China wants to use its diplomatic muscle to encourage other countries to go green, economic policies are already achieving this. Probably in the long term, the biggest impact of China on the climate change issue has been China's taking leadership on renewable energy. That's analyst Anders Hove of the Paulson Institute, which promotes low-carbon economic programs in China and the U.S. When the cost of these uh, energy systems fell, partly due to the scale-up of wind and solar power in China, um, that has a huge impact on the rest of the world because it has essentially made these technologies cost-competitive with fossil fuels. And that essentially has changed the name of the game for the discussion of climate change as a topic. Hove says soon the so-called energies of the future will be the energies of today. And at that point, instead of bickering over who pays for reducing pollution, everyone will be busy installing clean sources of power because they simply make economic sense. Reporting from China, this is Jocelyn Ford for America Abroad. Coming up next, we travel to another big polluter, India. It's also trying to transition to more renewable energy, but some say that transition is not happening quickly enough. We were ourselves very, very surprised at the huge amount of criticism that we got for the fact that we had not committed to actually reducing the absolute amount of emissions and the fact that coal use in India would continue to increase. If you want to join the conversation, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at America underscore abroad. You're listening to The Global Approach to Climate Change on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. It was a big deal when India decided to ratify the Paris Climate Agreement. After China and the United States, India is the world's third biggest carbon producer. India has taken major steps in adopting green technology, but the country is still dependent on coal. Antoine Guinard reports. The Indian government has set ambitious targets for the country in terms of clean energy, reforestation and emissions reductions. For example, during the climate talks in Paris, it was announced that 40% of India's energy would be produced from non-fossil sources by 2030. Ajay Mathur is the director of TERI, India's biggest research institute on energy and environment. He was also the spokesperson for India during the climate talks in Paris. The numbers, they were opposed by sometimes different ministries, sometimes by industry, sometimes by NGOs. But in the end, everybody agreed that this has to be a whole. And so in that sense, there was no pushback. Matur says part of the reason India was able to achieve consensus at home was its firm stand on coal, which remains a vital component of its energy mix, although that didn't sit well with some in the international community. Our goal is to keep on building our renewable capacity. A renewable capacity will be about 7 to 10 times in 2030 what it is today. And therefore the emphasis is on increasing the renewables capacity bringing down prices so that it becomes the preferred option. 
but we were ourselves very very surprised at the huge amount of criticism that we got for the fact that we had not committed to actually reducing the absolute amount of emissions and the fact that coal use in india would continue to increase the push for renewables is also being helped by the international market with the global price of solar panels falling sharply since 2011 it's a good time to invest in green energy Arunaba Ghosh is the founder and CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment and Water, one of South Asia's leading policy research institutions. He is highly optimistic about India's energy policy transformation. India is most certainly going through a renewables revolution. What India is trying to do in 7 years is what took Germany more than 2 decades to achieve. That degree of transformation. And obviously India is trying to do that at a much lower level of overall economic development and per capita income. The difference between Europe and India is the government is trying to grow the renewable industry not through direct subsidies for purchasing solar panels but rather by encouraging competitive bidding on what is often called reverse auctions. This means companies compete for a contract by promising the cheapest rate. According to Ajay Mathur, this has changed the game for renewables in India. Since Paris and in fact a little bit before that, we had started using the process of competitive procurement. So then people started investing in capacity and prices started reducing. A recent example serves as proof that this economic model is working. In February, the company that won a public bid in the central Indian region of Madhya Pradesh promised to produce 750 megawatts of electricity at a rate of 3.3 rupees per unit, making it the cheapest source of energy in the country, even cheaper than coal. Far from resisting this boom in renewables, coal producers are jumping on the bandwagon. Soma Banerjee of the Confederation of Indian Industry explains how renewable energy is being seen as a boon rather than a bane by these big players who have investments in fossil fuels. What I have seen instead of a pushback is uh, adoption because many of these coal-based power plants are now also bringing in renewable into their portfolio including the government companies. So you have NTPC which is the largest government company of power generation now with a huge bouquet of renewables. While India is on the path to transforming its energy economy, coal will still make up a good chunk of it for the foreseeable future. Available in abundance in India, it remains the base of the country's energy security policy. The government estimates that coal's contribution to the overall power mix will decline only marginally by a few percentage points and still represent around 60% of India's power generation in 2040. So as Ajay Mathur explains, coal miners aren't worried about losing their jobs just yet. So what we are saying is that the bulk of that energy growth will happen through renewables but coal will continue to grow but grow much slower than it would have otherwise but doesn't that still create some kind of resistance from whom i'm not throwing anybody out of work the coal company is actually going to expand the only thing is that growth instead of happening at i don't know 7% per year happens at 2% per year climate change isn't a theoretical problem in india Damandeep Singh is the director of the Carbon Disclosure Project, an NGO that encourages companies, cities and states to disclose their environmental impact. He insists that it is only logical for India to fight for a greener future. India according to several reports is one of the most vulnerable countries to impacts of climate change in terms of heat waves in terms of droughts and floods. So we suffer from that and we have a uh, millions of people living along the coast. So it is in our own interest to make sure that the impacts of climate change are reduced as much as possible
The shift in the energy economy has been dramatic. Even though coal use continues to grow, it's doing so at a much slower pace. And its overall share of India's energy mix is plateauing. The government has announced there will be no more coal-based power plants constructed for at least the next decade. So as India's energy needs grow, much of the new capacity is being filled in by renewables. According to government figures, renewables' share of India's overall energy mix have more than quadrupled since 2002, and it's on pace to quadruple again in the next decade. There is widespread agreement in India that this momentum towards cleaner energy seems irreversible. India is committed to gradually reducing its carbon footprint in a way that doesn't disrupt its development goals. For now, that means only slowing down the amount of its emissions. In the future, India hopes it can actually decrease its carbon output. For America Abroad, I'm Antoine Guinard. Now we head north, way north. In the Canadian Arctic, climate change is a reality people there face every day. This time of year, it used to be just ice. All you could see was white. Now, there's lots of greenery. But tackling climate change requires consensus from the whole country, including the provinces in Canada, such as Alberta, where the fossil fuel industry makes up a large part of the economy. And so far, they have won the national debate. Carrie Swigham has this story. Akalawit has been called the face of climate change in Canada's Arctic. A northern hub, it's just 200 miles south of the Arctic Circle. It's also the capital city of Nunavut, Canada's most northern territory. Colleen Healy is the director of the Climate Change Secretariat in Iqaluit. It's a new government department, just a few months old. I was born and raised in this community, so, um, and I'm, you know, I'm not that old, but in my short lifetime, I've seen a lot of change. Snowmobiles are a common sight here, as many places are still inaccessible by road. This is one of the world's most remote and sparsely settled regions. And it's also a place which is warming twice as fast as the global average. Despite the remoteness, Nunavut is having a baby boom and is the fastest growing territory or province in Canada. But newcomers outpace the supply of housing. And the infrastructure here is buckling. And so in Nunavut, uh, we are in what is called a continuous permafrost zone. So all buildings, all houses, all roads are built with the understanding that the ground is frozen, is going to stay frozen. With climate change, we're seeing that that's no longer the case. It's Colleen Healy's job to help northern communities adapt. Whether you have a house that's built on permafrost, uh, or whether you're government and you're trying to make sure that your runways are stable and that you can continue to have airplanes coming in. For Healy, climate change is not a political issue, but an unrelenting fact. Being in denial <laughs> isn't going to get us anywhere. We're, we're, our roads are uh, wearing away and our sea ice is thinning. So what's being done to help out Nunavut and those in the north? In May of 2015, the Conservative government under Prime Minister Stephen Harper introduced a non-binding carbon reduction plan, which they submitted to the Paris Climate Agreements. The plan calls for Canada to cut emissions by 30% of their 2005 levels by year 2030. To accomplish that, the plan would introduce a carbon pricing plan, tax polluters, and phase out coal-fired power plants. In the year and a half since Paris, a new Liberal government under Justin Trudeau has also adopted the plan. The government proposes that the price on carbon pollution should start at a minimum of $10 per tonne. The other choice is for cap and trade, a mechanism in which polluters would be able to buy carbon credits should they go above a set limit or sell credits if they're under. If neither price nor cap and trade 
is in place by 2018, the Government of Canada will implement a price in that jurisdiction. So far, the opposition in Canada has made it impossible to pass binding national laws because of a pushback from industry. Saskatchewan's Premier Brad Wall recently told Parliament that imposing a national carbon tax will push oil rig companies south of the border, hurting his province's already struggling oil and gas sector. I'm just saying, let's not be naive as Canadians. This is our number one, not just trading partner, but competitor for investments in energy uh, and you name it. And we need to be competitive with them. And while those concerns are very real, Trudeau waved them away. I think all Canadians know that Canadian climate policy will be set by Canadians, not by whoever happens to be the president of the United States. But that argument hasn't convinced the opposition, and no national law has been passed on things like cap-and-trade or carbon taxes. And now that the Trump administration has openly questioned the benefits of staying in the Paris Agreement, Canadian environmentalists are very concerned. This is Catherine Harrison. She's a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. Now we're in a moment kind of similar to what we were 15 years ago, where we've got a U.S. government that is, well, in this case, not only declining to take action, but actually proposing to reverse various actions. One thing Canadian environmentalists have in their favor is that there's widespread agreement in the country about the threat of climate change. A poll taken in 2015 on the heels of Paris showed three-quarters of Canadians agree climate change is a serious issue. So we don't see cabinet ministers, senators, provincial premiers questioning climate change in, in the same way in Canada. What they don't agree on is how to fix it. There has been more than two decades of pushback from fossil fuel producers and fossil fuel intensive industries. The other pushback is from Canadians themselves, especially in provinces which are the most dependent on coal power for energy and stand to lose the most jobs should they have to alter their economies. Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall said the carbon tax would be the largest national tax increase in Canadian history and cost his province $2.5 billion. The debate now simply is, oh, the carbon tax is going to hurt you, the carbon tax is going to hurt you. Linda Duncan is a member of parliament from Edmonton, Alberta. She feels for the laws to change, the debate has to go beyond costs and talk more about the benefits. I don't think that it works efficiently just simply to say, oh, you know, we committed worldwide and we helped to reach this international agreement. You actually have to put in place programs that are going to get people on board. You have to get a buy-in. She says her colleagues always say they're on board with enacting new climate laws. That is up until they realize the potential job loss caused by them. It would be fair to say that the government is mouthing the right policies. We have some concern that, that too much of the action to deliver on the climate reductions are being downloaded to the provinces and municipalities. Again, Catherine Harrison. So we've seen the province of Ontario phase out coal-fired power. The government of Quebec led in joining a cap-and-trade program with California, uh, and Ontario is now joining that, uh, and British Columbia adopted a carbon tax. So those are steps that have already been taken. Uh, they're really important steps, but they won't be enough. Not enough because without more federal funding, Harrison says Canada is unlikely to meet the emission reduction goals it announced in Paris. For America Abroad, I'm Carrie Swiggum. In many ways, Canada's struggle to find bipartisan cooperation on climate change mirrors what's happening in the United States. So far, what we've had is solutions that don't fit with conservative values. 
That's Bob Inglis speaking to us via Skype. He's a former Republican congressman from South Carolina. He now works with a group called Republic N. The N is for energy and enterprise. His group looks for conservative solutions to climate change. And he says the rhetoric on the left is all wrong. Instead of focusing on how the world is going to end, we should talk about opportunities, opportunities to create new wealth by investing in renewables. He says that's how to get people excited about reducing carbon emissions. So we're going to have more energy, more mobility, more freedom, that we're going to bring accountability and watch the free enterprise system deliver innovation faster than government mandates or regulations could ever imagine. Inglis says there should be a national carbon tax. That means industries like coal would have to pay for the pollution they cause. His constituents hated that idea, and he lost his seat in Congress, but he's sticking with it. He says his tax should also be slapped on imports from places like China. He acknowledges that would be challenged in the World Trade Organization, but he says the U.S. would win. We figure that China would, uh, within 24 hours, uh, have the same price on carbon dioxide. Then the whole world would follow, and we'd have this worldwide truer costing of energy, not artificial costing, rather just taking it to the actual cost. Because as Milton Friedman wrote in the title of his book in 1975, there's no such thing as a free lunch. We're currently paying all of the cost associated with the burning of fossil fuels. We're paying through the healthcare system for the small particulates that get in our lungs and some of us end up at the hospital. We pay that way immediately in the short term. And then we're paying in climate damages. We're just not paying at the meter and we're not paying at the pump. But if we put it on the meter, then solar would compete, wind would compete, natural gas would compete even better than it's beating coal now. And the result would be an energy revolution that uh, really rivals the tech revolution. Coming up, the green tech revolution that's happening in North Africa. In the very end is really the question how to get the technology cost competitive, and for that they have to grow very fast. You're listening to After Paris, Global Approaches to Climate Change on America Abroad. For more on this topic and to see photos of the places we visited today, you can head to our website at PRI.org. You're listening to After Paris, Global Approaches to Climate Change on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. Now let's take a look at a small country that's trying to make some big changes. Morocco is in North Africa. It gets plenty of sunshine and has a relatively stable government. These two factors have made it very attractive to outside energy investors. And now the country has become a testing ground for emerging solar technology. Reporter Chris Bentley explains. When you've driven four hours from Marrakesh on windy roads through Morocco's Atlas Mountains to a barren plateau on the edge of the Sahara Desert, it's a little surreal to suddenly find yourself rising off the ground in a new elevator to the top of a sleek observation tower. Step outside and you're suddenly looking at something even more surreal. Half a million gleaming mirrors stretching out in every direction across the dusty red earth. This part of Morocco, near the desert outpost of Warsazat, is one of the sunniest places on the planet. And this sprawling new solar power plant is the heart of Morocco's big push for clean power and energy independence. So the mirrors follow the movement of the sun. Youssef Stitu is a senior project engineer. At the beginning of the day, they are oriented towards the east, and they are continuing to move following the sun until get uh, to be orientated to the west side. 
All that sunlight can help generate a lot of electricity, but not in the way you might think. It happens here, in the plant's turbine room. You see, those aren't photovoltaic panels surrounding the tower. The mirrors are curved like satellite dishes, and they focus the sunlight onto long rows of metal pipes filled with liquid salt that can reach more than 700 degrees. All that heat is used to make steam and spin turbines, just like a regular power plant. And here's the thing. Stitu says that hot liquid can effectively store some of the sun's energy for up to three hours after sundown. After the sunset, the hot salt is giving back the thermal energy that it goes to produce steam during the night. And the process addresses a common criticism of solar energy, that it's useless when the sun doesn't shine. This kind of plant is called Concentrated Solar Power, or CSP. It's not a new idea, but it's starting to get a lot more traction. And it's potentially transformational for countries like Morocco that have huge renewable energy resources. But it's also expensive. Just the first phase of this three-part project costs nearly a billion dollars. And it could be a risky investment. It's really impressive, the pace, how they do it. Whether they're better on the right technology, they will find out in the years to come. Christian Breyer is a renewable energy expert from Finland who has studied the project. Morocco is pumping up its solar capacity faster than just about any other country, but Breyer says it still might not be fast enough to keep up with the speed of innovation in the industry. For instance, plain old photovoltaic panels and batteries to store their output have improved so quickly that they threaten to outshine concentrated solar plants like this one. We will see a race of these two technologies. But in the very end, it's really the question how to get the technology cost competitive, and for that, they have to grow very fast. Morocco is moving very fast. When construction here is finished next year, it could be the biggest solar plant in the world. Morocco is hoping its huge investments will help bring prices for concentrated solar technology down. But the country is running another kind of energy race, too. 20 years ago, only about half of Moroccans had electricity. Now almost everybody does and the country's population and economy are growing fast. Everyone starts to have its own smartphone, uh, PC, laptop, uh, TV. Samir Rashidi is a project manager at the Moroccan Agency for Solar Energy. I met him in a huge conference center at the recent International Climate Summit in Marrakesh. Rashidi says if Morocco doesn't aggressively develop renewable energy, then our economic growth will be hostage of foreign fossil fuel. Those imported fossil fuels are still Morocco's biggest energy source. But King Mohammed VI has declared that by 2030, more than half of the country's energy should come from renewables. The king also promised to tamp down demand by making the country 20% more energy efficient. The country's hoping this new solar plant will help it meet its goals. It's also hoping the project will help kickstart a domestic renewable energy industry that could one day be able to sell cheap renewable electricity to its neighbors. But royal decrees will only get you so far. Morocco's renewable energy revolution will ultimately have to survive on market economics. And Rashidi says so far, the numbers don't always add up. Actually, now we are importing like 16% of our needs from Spain because they have overcapacity and sometimes it's really much cheaper to get electricity from Spain than to produce in Morocco. So we are really doing this at a competitive basis. That kind of competition will help determine whether Morocco's big bet on concentrated solar power will pay off. Rashidi and others here hope that by 2030, they'll be able to look back on the Noor plant as the laboratory that made Morocco a solar superpower, not just an expensive mirage in the desert. Chris Bentley, Marrakesh. That story came to us courtesy of our friends at PRI's The World and The Ground Truth Project.
Increasingly, the decision to address climate change has become not just an economic or environmental decision, but a strategic one. Even though others within the Trump administration have called into question the science behind global warming or the wisdom of investing in clean energy, Defense Secretary James Mattis has called the issue a threat to world stability and security. Jared Polis is the director of the new documentary, The Age of Consequences, which looks at the strategic impacts of climate change. Any percentage of risk with nuclear weapons, we don't accept. Any percentage of risk that there'd be a terrorist attack somewhere, you don't accept. So why would you accept, you know, as a global community, any percentage, especially when we can mitigate that percentage on climate change? We built society on this assumption of climate stability, and that stability is changing. All these things we take for granted, they're not just givens anymore. One of the people featured in the Age of Consequences is Michael Breen. He's president and CEO of the left-leaning Truman National Security Project. That's a group that was started after 9-11 and is dedicated to training the next generation of leaders on national security issues. He is also a former U.S. Army officer. Michael Breen, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to have you. Well, could you describe more in detail why climate change poses a security threat? Sure. So climate change is what the Pentagon calls an accelerant to instability, uh, meaning that it's a risk factor that increases the, the possibility of conflict and, and accelerates the drivers of conflict around the world. And very simply, what I mean by that is, as the climate changes, we're seeing too much water in some places, not enough in others. That leads to flooding, which can lead to mass displacement of people. It can lead to drought, which in turn leads to hunger, to thirst, and the mass displacement of people. And all of these things create the conditions for violence. Uh, this can destabilize countries that are on the edge of instability anyway. Uh, it can accelerate social dynamics that, that lead to conflict and, and challenge state authorities and state structures. Uh, and it can produce a breeding ground for insurgents and extremists who recruit the, the desperate refugees, people who are, who are suffering from famine, drought, and other effects, uh, are a pretty great recruiting pool for extremist organizations. Uh, folks may not believe in their ideology, but you'll do a lot to feed your family if you don't have an alternative. And so climate change just makes those dynamics more, more real. Well, I guess you could argue that all conflicts since time began or since man walked the earth were about resources and who had access to which resources. But you're saying that climate change is changing that in a new way and in a more profound way? Absolutely. Uh, creates resource scarcity. And you're right, this is a timeless thing. Um, there is a a tablet, I think it's a sandstone tablet in the Louvre that's, I think, the earliest recorded peace treaty or one of them, and it's, a, it's the resolution of a water war in ancient Mesopotamia. I mean, people have been fighting and, and dying over access to things like water uh, since we've had civilization. That's not new, but climate change represents an unprecedented strain on uh, really a, a global stasis we've taken for granted. I mean, all of human civilization has been built within a certain bandwidth of, of climate reality. And we're starting to slide out of that bandwidth, and the projections have us moving radically out of that bandwidth if we continue down our current path. That is an uncontrolled experiment that's unprecedented in human history, uh, and there will be major consequences. It can also create opportunities that, that lead to conflict. So as the Arctic uh, ice melts, as a new ocean opens up in the poles, uh, that creates a new venue for competition for resources like oil and minerals and other things on the seafloor uh, that are now accessible uh, to Russia, to the United States, to Canada, and to other Arctic nations. And so you're seeing increased competition. The Russians very recently opening a major military base in the Arctic. So if you think about um, geopolitics as a chessboard, 
climate change is moving the squares around a little bit. It's, it's changing the actual uh, venue for, for where we do geopolitics, where competition and cooperation happen. Do you think the military is taking this seriously? Seriously enough? They're definitely taking it seriously. You know, they talk about climate change in their strategic documents this way, same way they talk about the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and terrorism. Uh, it's that dangerous. But what about the White House? President Trump has minimized or denied the effects of climate change. In fact, his budget calls for cuts to almost every single climate change initiative in many agencies and departments, including the EPA, the Department of Energy, NASA, NOAA. All of them would be, all of their climate change initiatives would be cut in the president's budget. So how does that leadership square with what the Pentagon is saying? I mean, frankly, it doesn't square with what the Pentagon is saying, uh, and it's, it's troubling. I think, on the other hand, uh, there may be some cause for a little bit of hope uh, with respect to the administration. And the president, as he speaks to his national security experts, as he speaks to Secretary Mattis and others, and as he hears from the Department of Defense and he hears from the scientific community, and, and he looks at what is really an incontrovertible just wall of evidence uh, that this is not only happening but a major national security threat, that maybe he'll change his mind on this as he has so many other things. I think we have to hope for that uh, because the signal from the White House is not only out of step with the security community here in the United States and the insurance industry and the scientific community and anybody who deals with risk in our society in a responsive way is on one side of the climate change issue that the White House is now on the other, but it's also badly out of step with the international community. This is a problem uh, that is, it may be the largest global collective action problem we have ever faced. Uh, the United States has played an indispensable leadership role uh, through the Paris Agreement and other things. And walking away from that would not only be against our national security interest, it would be an abdication of American global leadership in a very fundamental way uh, that the Chinese and others would see and react to. And I, I really think that's a mistake. Michael Breen, he is president and CEO of the Truman National Security Project. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. The fact is, it would be difficult to exit the Paris Accord. Countries have to stay in for three years. And then, if they still want to get out, they have to give a year's notice. By that time, the market for renewables will probably be even stronger. And with more droughts and fierce storms likely, the national security implications will be even greater. And so we may be stuck with Paris, the worst, best agreement we have for a long time. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulovitz with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to the Washington, D.C. Environmental Film Festival and the Ground Truth Project. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI Public Radio International.